Male eights on the more unhealthy end of the spectrum often can walk into even a professional environment and drop F-bombs and push people around and not maybe physically, but they can have that presence and people go, oh yeah, well, he's the alpha male. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I were to do that, more of the unhealthy end of the spectrum, I would be punished for that socially. I just, I feel the explosion in the room. Oh, you're such a four, Israel Balderas. Don't you feel it? You're a four, too. I can feel it. I mean, I'm, I almost want to just duck for cover. <laughs> it's one thing to have a one in the room. I'm married to a one. It's one thing to have an eight in the room. Put them together. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and we have that today. It's going to be a great day. How's it going, my friend? Everything is fine. It's a wonderful Friday here in sunny South Florida, and we are pumped. We are ready to introduce our friends who are a married couple, an eight, and a one, Kent and Megan Baramey. And uh, I'm just ready and ready to go. How are you doing today, Israel? I am doing well. It's uh, Today we're recording on a Friday. Uh, you know, we're looking ahead towards uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s yes. uh, holiday weekend. And so my family and I, we are going to go to uh, SeaWorld. Excellent. That Which means like fun. I'm not going to get any rest this weekend. <laughs> Running around after a little one. Yes, right. and in which I'm I'm sure that this conversation that we're going to have today will have to involve kids, because the couple that we have here they are young, right? <laughs> They've been married for a couple of years. But I don't see little ones running around. You and I can help them with that. <laughs> Not yet, at least, right? These are your students, by the way, so I think maybe you should introduce them. Okay, I will. Former well, students. Yes, I was just going to say that. They are my former students. Um, but as they've learned when they were here and, and they knew it ahead of, a to- ahead of time, we are all students. We continue to grow. We continue in personal development. These are two of my favorite people in the world, besides being former students. And uh, uh, I had the privilege of kind of like watching their love unfold, you know, watching them fall in love. And uh, what are you guys married? Five years now? Six? Almost five. Almost five. Okay. So you've got a good clip under your belt of years and you are also world travelers. So we've got a lot to talk about. I was hoping maybe we could start with each of them introducing themselves and saying a little bit about who they, how they figured out their number. What do you think? Israel? All right, Megan, why don't you go first? Great. Uh, great to be here with you both. Um, I'm Megan. I live in West Palm with my husband, Kent, who's here today. Um, we also are business owners together. Um, we own a small digital marketing agency. Um, so I'm sure we'll get into that. Not only are we married, but we work together. <laughs> which I'm sure. What's the name of your agency? Our agency is called Ashby and Gabriel, um, which is a play on both of our middle names. Kent's middle name is Ashley and mine is Gabriella. And so we kind of adapted those words to come up with the name of our company. Now, usually with eight and ones, you guys mixed together because you want to fight for truth and justice. What kind of marketing company are you into social justice issues? Does it fit with your personalities? Absolutely. So I think that's one of the great things about being 
an eight married to a one is that we are on the same page about both being very driven, we're very ambitious, and we're both very principled people who care about things that are bigger than ourselves. Um, and that's definitely reflected in our work. Uh, we do quite a bit of nonprofit, political, and church-based marketing. Um, I run our church-based and nonprofit verticals, and Kent is much more specialized in e-commerce. He does a lot of work with companies that give back, social enterprises, and uh, people who are making a business investment for good in the world. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, my name is Kent Barami. I'll uh, jump in really quick here. Um, <laughs> and I'm the one in this relationship. Um, and just like all college students, right when you come out of college, you have to make it work, right? Um, with a comm degree, I was, I was trying to figure out what that would look like. And easily it fell into digital marketing. And immediately it, it wasn't connected to something I was super passionate about not something I really wanted to fight for justice-wise or, or anything like that. And so every single day now in our business, we always think about how we can fold that into it because it will kill me if it's not like that. Like it is very painful if we are just sort of like running campaigns for a big company, making money. And, right. you know, it's really easy to do that. It's not easy to find, you know, these gems of organizations. That's really what we what we fight for. And I think it's why it works well for yeah. us. You want to be doing things for a higher purpose. Um, both of your personality types are those that are into justice, um, being doing good, the one doing what is right, doing it well, the eight, justice, and, and being a protector um, of, of others. And so, um, great. Well, why don't you tell us how you got into the, de the Enneagram or maybe start with like how you that and how you figured out your number. So a couple years ago, we had a friend in town to visit. Uh, she's the director of residence life for a small Christian university in Illinois. And the Enneagram was a tool she was using with her res life staff. And so she brought it up one evening after, you know, a dinner discussion. And she had brought a book with her where I believe it may have been the essential Enneagram or a book like that where it had kind of long form descriptions of the different types. So it's interesting. Neither of us came into this journey through the test. Uh, she introduced it to us by reading the descriptions of the type and then kind of asking us where we identified. And in some ways, I think that that's a more accurate way to enter into the Enneagram. I know a lot of people who have really struggled with the assessment being accurate or they've come out as different numbers a few different times. Um, as soon as she read the types, um, I did not need her to read them twice. I said, I'm an eight. Um, I think that's actually very common for eights. More than other types, we know that that's our type. Um, I often hear people who say, I don't know what I am. Maybe I'm a three maybe I'm an eight, maybe I'm a one. And I say, well, you're not an eight because you would know the second you read the description <laughs> if you were an eight. Um, so my experience was immediate. Um, but when we read those descriptions for the first time, Kent was actually very unsure still oh, at that yeah. point of what type he might be. Um, and it, so maybe you want to tell a little bit, you have a longer journey to figuring out which type you identify with. Yeah, I mean, it was tough reading the, the type one description and then maybe I didn't connect with it because I was scared of connecting with it, um, like sort of admitting that it, that's how it, how it was. Um, I, I really wanted a more exciting number <laughs> that wasn't like the reformer or the fixer. Did the you feel that being a one wasn't exciting? Or what, what was it about it that stirred some emotion for you? I think initially it was so honest about the motivations for who a one is. 
and I really lined up with those things, but I was scared of sort of admitting that I, I lined up with those things really well. Mm-hmm. After I, I got past that initial feeling, I felt very comfortable in it, and I started being very okay with being a one, and I started really enjoying being a one after just like, all right, this is actually how I think about these mm-hmm. things. And as Megan and I were, were talking about our descriptions and, and learning more and more about each other, um, it was just like, wow, she has such a specific lens of the world that I do not have. And she is just one number. I can't even imagine for the other seven numbers, like what their lens is as well that I have not carried my whole entire life. And that was like very groundbreaking for me, just in terms of me thinking about the Enneagram, me thinking of other people's motivations, why they're doing things, um, what I've been hurt from, what's been hurting them, especially in my family, um, it, with our relation, with my relationship with Megan, there's just so many things that just came up from this that I, you know, I was like, wow, there's a lot of work to be done. Right. And usually ones are not allowed to express bad emotions. Yeah. Do you, you find that that's the case for you? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I'm very, I'm very textbook in being, being a one. Um, I think, you know, it, it's hard to have the negative emotions come out and I just sort of keep them in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and Megan has seen this so many times where I'll keep this in my head mm-hmm. and she knows and I know that I'm just sort of building a resentment mm-hmm. inside of my head. And it's it's funny because I'll catch myself. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm becoming resentful about this this thing. And growing up when I was younger, that's just how it'd be. I'd just become this emo sort of, child that's in my bedroom like thinking about it and and creating these arguments and and I just won't ever show that like I just will never never show that I will never voice it no one knew about it um, but I'll just have it just like stirring in, inside of me so 100% accurate it's well, interesting the timeline of all of this we dated for four years before we got married and we discovered the Enneagram about a year into our marriage so we had known each other in a pretty intense way for half a decade by the point that we discovered this. And when Kent read to me for the first time that he was a one and he was reading this description, I said, what? That doesn't describe you at all. Um, And it was so eye-opening to me to realize that this person who I thought I knew so well had this whole inner life that I was not aware of. Because my type is so much more expressive than his, I think that by that point in our life, Kent knew me very well, um, he was not surprised to hear that that was the type I identified with. Um, but I had pegged Kent as maybe a nine or maybe a five. And when he started describing this awful, in my mind, awful <laughs> inner critic that he lives with, I had no idea that that was there mm. after five years mm. of knowing each other very well. And it was an immediate turning point toward health in our relationship because I was able to have some compassion for this whole side of Kent that I did not previously know existed. This really makes the point of why we cannot type each other. We, yeah. It's not good form to, to try to type someone else, no matter how well we know them. We may be able to offer insight, but to type another person, we just don't know. No one knows the inner motivations of another's heart. Um, now, from the outside looking in, Knowing Kent for those years, he is, uh, you know, in some ways the like um, 
not certainly not the stereotype one, but has all of those high one traits like conscientious, mm. right? Ethical, a strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. Um, and so, I mean, even from the outside as a professor, I could see that in, in you, but, but like you, you said, um, Megan, um, who sees the inner critic? I remember when you first told me that you were a one, you were very excited about the Enneagram. Yeah. You were really passionate about it, that you found that, you know, this really helped you become more self-aware. And you started telling me about the inner critic. Um, maybe we talk about the inner critic a little bit here. What is that for a one? Um, well, yeah. and I'm married to a one. So we've discussed that in relationships, right? Right. Uh, between a four and a one. How do you deal with that? What what I'm interested in, and and you know, for those who are listening, uh, you know, you are at the tail end of millennials, right? You're late twenties. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I'd be curious, Stephanie, since you've studied relationships for so long, I wonder if there is sort of this gap between our generation, Generation X, and millennials when it comes to awakening to this realization. Because it wasn't, because when I was dating my wife, you know, now looking back, oh no, I, she was a one, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm surprised <laughs> to hear you say it took so long that you didn't see that, you know, inner critic, right? I mean, when you mix a one and an eight, you've got a perfectionist boss couple, and I'm surprised that you didn't see it. What do you think? Well, that's a really good question, and I definitely want to hear from Megan and Kent on this, but I will bring some of my language to this, is that... The longer two people are married and really have a strong intention to know each other and love each other, not just kind of be a couple, but really be there for each other, uh, the, the better chance there is for this kind of knowledge of the other to come forth and the, and the self-knowledge to become apparent. What I love about the millennials and the millennials who are willing to do this kind of work is that... Um, it's not it's not that I think the older generations aren't willing or weren't willing to do the, the work, but that's part of the gift of the Enneagram, that there's a vocabulary that will, we can use to help ourselves and help each other pinpoint those things that trigger us, that cause us to behave in unhealthy ways, that cause us to treat those we love sometimes very poorly. Uh, there's an old song I remem remember my mom used to... Um, play on the uh, old, uh, her old Victrola, I mean, that went way back as a kid, called You Always Hurt the One You Love. Why? Why do we always hurt the one we love? Well, it's like the millennials um, have, have, I believe, uh, just embraced the Enneagram so much because they want they want to go forward in deep relationship and really express healthy love, and, and this gives them some of the wisdom and vocabulary to do it. I don't know that our generations, especially our parents' generations and, and older than that, had the, had the vocabulary. I mean, the Enneagram was there, but it wasn't as popular. It wasn't used. Uh, would you like to comment on that or Kent? Yeah, I think an interesting layer to this is that Kent and I both identify with the nine wing. And so a lot of that early relationship, even though um, I tend to be very explosive outside the relationship and Kent is having this kind of inner turmoil with his critic, we often did not express that to each other. Um, and so it was interesting for me that I could observe that Kent, uh, at the time he was training to be an artist, a storybook 
uh, artist. And he would, his mentor would tell him, you need to really learn how to draw a circle. And then Kent would draw, and this is not an exaggeration, 10,000 circles. He would go through reams and reams of paper doing that. And to me, that looked like hard work. It looked like someone who was very principled and committed to excellence, which are traits that I admire. And because he was not expressing to me that it was coming from a place of, man, none of this is good enough. I have to keep going and keep going in this almost obsessive way. Um, Because he was trying to have that kind of nine wing with me, we were trying to have this kind of peaceful relationship with each other. Um, It was very interesting to see that that didn't immediately come to the surface. Yeah, it usually happens in dating. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, you're going to see the best part of me. <laughs> yeah. I never get angry. No, that doesn't bother me. Right. Going exactly. out for Italian for the 10th time. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I, I think that was one of the things from Megan that was really um, just, just something that I was drawn to, um, enamored with, was her sense of social justice. And I was like, wow, this girl will go go um go to strip clubs and pray for the women at the strip clubs and that's a very bold thing to do freshman year of college to a place you've never been to before and I was like that's like that's some chutzpah right it's like some <laughs> gusto to go do that and I'm like that's who I want to get to know like that's who I want around me and I think that also you know clarified my one um, one motivations as well, because I, I saw that as a very important trait from her, um, which is, it's just fascinating to me now thinking about it. We should, we were, we weren't thinking about any of this stuff before. It's just now sure. we look at the story back and it all lines up. Do you know that you're known as the, the eight one couple is known as the perfectionist boss couple and that in, you essentially are Enneagram opposites. So your combination of uh, personality patterns uh, is the most volatile, can be the most volatile partnering. Um, Part of the reason for that is because you're both in that anger triad or Mm. that, I should say, the gut triad, the body triad, where anger is the go-to emotion. But as you inferred a few minutes ago, your anger comes out more externally much more easily. I mean, eights are known also to stuff a little bit, uh, but it comes out much more easily, whereas the anger really gets pushed down for the one. The one just takes that anger and it just foments and flusters and just stirs up inside. And then when it comes out, it really comes out. But it can also come out in other ways, resentment and, and such there. And it's a rare pairing, right? Eights and ones. Usually, you don't see them in a married couple relationship, but uh, you will see them in friendship relationships. Those, you mm-hmm. know, sort of friends and colleagues that you you admire, you care about. Wow, you did that. That is great. Mm-hmm. But almost, you know, the two shall never go in the same <laughs> path. Did that happen for you at all right before you all married during your college years that you kind of maybe considered just being, hey, we're good friends versus we're romantic I feel like for me, there was always a romantic attraction. Um, But I think that we knew, we could see from our relationship compared to a lot of the other couples who were on a similar timeline with us, that our relationship always felt bigger to me, not necessarily harder. um, But I think we 
both knew almost from the start that neither of us intended to live small lives and that we were looking for something in a marriage and professional capacity and just kind of overall life goals that was bigger than that. So I appreciated that trait in him. I knew that I was not willing to settle for a small life and that was a key trait I was looking for in a partner. Um, And I could see immediately that Kent was kind of this perfect matchup of wanting a big life, being very ambitious, but at the same time, he was a much more stable and grounded person than I was. And that that seemed to me like a very rare combination. Um, It was very attractive. I think that this maybe would have given me pause if I had the language of the Enneagram at the time, um, or if I had known maybe how strong of an inner critic he had, um, or the extent of maybe some perfection tendencies. But uh, no, I don't think that there, for me, (laughs) there was ever a moment of we might just be friends. We were friends, but Always yeah, with romantic I mean, interest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we never clashed or anything like that where I was like, oh, this will never work. Like, it never got to that point. Like, just like what you were saying, I also had that same feeling where it was like, there's so much more happening at play here than just a relationship. Like, so much more, like, there's so much more purpose in this relationship than than us being petty about small things. And so we really never clashed about those things, but we really had a, a synergy about, about what type of purpose we had, the things that we were excited about, um, really living like a big life. Like we were both really excited about that. And I was like, I would be dumb if I didn't do this with Megan. Right. Like <laughs> this is like the <laughs> way we got to go. Like yeah, perfect that way. Once I saw that, white rose appear on her desk i said that's it that's you, got, it. you got to get context come on oh, <laughs> you, gotta, you spoke so you got to okay. tell us what's well, up well megan worked for our department and um was always running all kinds of work for me copies right i made you the copy queen i'm sorry um and uh kent was in my class so i knew them fr- freshman year uh, a bit and um then all of a sudden i noticed Kent kind of hanging around a little bit that desk and just talking and chatting. A few weeks later, I know, or maybe it was a few days later, I noticed a little vase with a white rose or a couple of white long stem roses there. And I just knew it. I thought these two are made for each other. They're going places and they're going together. You know, you just know it in your gut. You know, that four thing, like you said at the beginning, Israel, you feel it. You feel it. I felt it. I felt it. I knew it. Um, I sensed it. And of course, you know, sometimes I'm wrong like that. But And it's so funny you use the phrase, they're going places. Yeah. Because you all, for your first two or three years of marriage, that's all you did, oh, right? Oh, the Globetrotters. Yeah, you were, sure. I mean, if we see your pictures on Facebook, you've been around the world. So what was up with that? And I'd love to know, come on, be honest, tell me about the major fight when you're traveling. Because <laughs> I've traveled with one. <laughs> And, you know, it can be powerful. So share. (laughs) Come on. So one of our our goals, we um, both found that uh, neither of us work well with a boss, really. Um, Even though we had a couple great bosses right out of college um, and early in our career, we both immediately wanted to be self-employed. We didn't like the chains of employment. (laughs) Um, And so 
we both realized pretty quickly we had a skill set that could go fully remote. Um, so we worked on launching the company. Uh, Kent quit his job first, and then about six months later, I quit mine. Um, so we were able to start the company together and go fully remote. Um, and from there, I remember we were sitting in our living room one evening, and Kent was on his laptop, and he said, uh, let's move to New Zealand next month. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that, huh? <laughs> I was I serious. Said, Honey, great. did you get the milk? <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, we're going to New Zealand. Yeah. And we did not ever end up in New Zealand. It's still on our list of places to go. But that same night, we reached out to another couple um, who, one, she works with us, and her husband also works remotely for a separate company. He did at the time. And I said, hey, do you guys want to move abroad with us? And she said, sure, when? <laughs> and she's so, a seven. Uh, she's seven, a yes. Good, good number to ask that. Yeah. We, we've Adventure. had sevens. We, yeah. We've had a seven in here. That's right. It's a party with them. Yes. Right. So our lease finished up um, about six weeks later, and we were then completely remote and completely mobile for two years. We did about six months in Europe, and then we did a big cross-country American road trip um, that lasted uh, for about four months. We went to South Africa. My family is South African, so we were out there visiting them. Um, and now we do have a permanent address, which is kind of a new thing for us, but we are looking forward to some big travels this year as well. Um, let me think about the big fight with traveling. I think one key thing to note is that it always comes afterwards. Uh, Kent is almost never willing to fight in the moment as much as I try to provoke that. It's that um, resentment thing. It's just like you keep it in there. <laughs> you just like hold it. And let then it it's fester. just like, there's just like a day where it's just like, all right, I got to let her know. Yeah, I'm feeling. What is it? Comes it? Come out on, what poorly. is it during travel that you know that you resent? Um, there is a specific story that I, I, <laughs> I hang on to it all the time, and I can like I can like close my eyes, and I'm like back in that moment. Okay, like, everybody, listening, close your eyes. Um, <laughs> it's not, and it's, it's it's not that bad, but um, you know, I think we were trying to get we were in Florence, and we were trying to get to to Portugal, um, and we you know. Megan and um, the other couple that was there was doing such a great job researching, finding, you know, the itinerary to get over there. And I just wasn't getting involved because I know that once I get involved, it I will gain responsibility for things. So I was like, I'm just not going to touch this. I'll figure it out. And this, pro- this, this process was taking a long time. And it was just like it's something that I was like, all right, I think I, I want to take a stab at this and, and find something. And so we, you know, they found an itinerary that was like for us to go from Florence on a train to Milan, stay over Milan for a night and then fly out of Milan to Portugal. And it was going to take some ridiculous amount of time. You're going to be tired. And the thing is, we're traveling with like our, our life's like items. Like we, this is all we had at the time with us. Like we didn't have anything else with us other than the clothing that we brought over there, all the things that we were using to work with. So it's a lot of stuff. It was like bags and luggages and backpacks. And you didn't even have a car with you. No car. And so I was like, man, this is going to be a horrible, horrible trip, like just to do this. And so I, I looked it up and I found a flight straight, Florence um, to to Lisbon straight. And we would have we had to pay like $30 more to, to do it. And I was like, and I, you knew you were right. Right. You saw. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I hate I hate that feeling because I I know sometimes I'm wrong, (laughs) (laughs) but the feeling of like I'm right about this is like so powerful. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to I don't want to feel this feeling because I want to be objective about 
the answer. Like, I want to be objective about this. Like, I don't want to feel like I'm right about this. I mean, and, and, so, and that leads to guilt, right? Because then you feel you're right, but then... Yes. Like I feel guilty for feeling. Yes. Right. Yeah, and then this inner critic thing starts happening and then if I if I play with the inner critic through this scenario, I can go down a rabbit hole that is very negative. <laughs> that is not good, not helpful for the end result, not helpful for Megan, not helpful for anyone involved. So I always am careful about that process. Um now I am careful about this process, but before it was, you know, we clashed about that. I said, we're going to, like, we have to do this. This is a no-brainer. I'll pay, th- like, I'll work an extra two hours to do this. <laughs> like, whatever it takes for us to just fly straight from Florence to Lisbon. And they're like, no, no, no. This is how we're going to do it. And that was, like, such a, like, it felt like I wasn't being listened to. It felt like I was, like, right, but no one really cared about that. Um, and that was, like, really, really, really hard for me. So it wasn't like a, like a, a big like personal character assassination. It was just more like a like a, a difference in in what we thought was right or wrong in that specific situation. good segue into how we fight because I can explain some specifics of how this unfolded. My preference, strong preference, is get all the cards on the table immediately. I hate waiting. I hate letting things simmer or linger. I think that, you know, this the way to heal this is for you to know what I'm dealing with, me to know what you're dealing with, figure it out. Um, So I prefer to have conflict in the moment whenever possible. Kent prefers to wade things out, listen to all sides, strategically come up with how he's going to present his opinion on the scenario. So this is unfolding in our tiny living room in Florence at about one o'clock in the morning. Um, I am typically the planner of our travel logistics, and I was working on that with my friend who's the seven, and she and I have a big energy together. We're bumping flight ideas off of each other. It's late. We're eating food. We're you know, comparing all these prices, we're moving money around bank accounts, trying to make it work. At the time, we had nothing. We were super poor. (laughs) We were living like peasants in Florence. And so even though, you know, it sounds silly to me now that the savings was $30, that was significant to us at the time. But I was not asking Kent's opinion. We were moving very quickly. And he's actually being really kind to me right now about what this itinerary was. The itinerary was actually a taxi to the train station in Florence, uh, a train with a layover in Milan, a five-minute layover train with all of our luggage of all of our belongings, another train outside of Milan, a hotel in Milan, uh, a flight out of Milan through Belgium, uh, a long layover in Belgium, another flight to Lisbon, and then with either itinerary, we had to arrange pickup in Lisbon. But I mean, I can even feel it. I, feel I don't know about too. you, but okay. did you feel that? Are you kidding me? I'm just, I started I'm feeling, feeling anxious oh my goodness, in like, my heart just yeah, hearing that. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds quite bravado. Right. Which, in some ways, that's healthy for you. But as Ken was explaining, that bravado turns into lawlessness. Yes. Yep. So I, I think uh, difficult 
travel situations bother me less. I like the story. I like having to figure things out on the spot. Uh, Kent's much more of a planner. He likes for things to run smoothly and run well. Um, and I didn't ask him. It, I could see that he was simmering in the corner. It was all over his face, but I was in the zone. I was getting this itinerary sorted out. And so I booked it. Um, and booked it all non-refundable, of course, because that was the cheaper option and we were being cheap. And uh, the next day was when Kent started to bring it up with me. And, and he was livid and he felt very, very betrayed that, um, that I know that he's a good planner. I know that he's good at research and figuring things out. And yet I did not seek his opinion or uh, his input on this process. Um, and this kind of lingered with us for weeks and it still comes up occasionally. Um, it may sound like a silly thing, but it was really, um, it was not about the itinerary, even though we did end up having to do the terrible itinerary. Uh, it was about not seeking his input when I'm in the middle of it, making decisions, calling shots, um, which has been something that we've had to learn how to address in our relationship. Very, very interesting. It's so interesting to listen to the two of you, and I'm sure for our listeners, they're loving this. They're eating this up, um, especially for those who are in relation to someone who is uh, dominantly eight or dominantly one. What what Israel and I like to do in the past in this podcast is, is sometimes talk about the numbers um, from a perspective of the nine lives we believe. This is something we learned from Chuck DeGroat. Um, who came here. And um, I think our listeners would benefit uh, if we brought this up again, especially those who are not as familiar with the Enneagram or the numbers and the traits. So for a one, the lie that the, that the uh, one believes is, I'm not good enough. There's a foundational flaw in me. I'm not good enough. The lie, of course, that the eight believes is a little bit different. That, that is, um, I can't let them see me sweat. I can't let them see me vulnerable. I'll be weak. So uh, there are strategies, of course, to deal with these lies. And the one as a strategy, which is the personality, that's how the ego comes up, this strategy to deal with the lie is you become the righteous one. You become the one who tries to fix or reform everyone. And in, in the unhealthiest place, I mean, and that's wonderful when a, when a one can, but in the unhealthiest place, the strategy is to become the savior and try to fix the world, try to fix everyone and everything. Whereas with the eight, the strategy uh, to overcome that lie is a little bit different. That's, uh, I can be large, I can be in charge, you know, I can be in control and I can control my world and my life. So so that's why, and that's how you never let them see you sweat. So why don't you each tell us um, if that resonates for you and how you have strategized um, to um, deal with that lie. Why don't we start, with Megan? Sure. Um, so I think for me, I grew up really, really believing this. And if I'm honest with you, I still believe it um, pretty strongly that um, – Big expressions of emotions, especially vulnerable emotions, make people weak um, and would certainly make me weak. I'm a little bit more understanding of that in other people, um, but not as much myself. Um, and I've 
built a life that kind of reinforces that in many ways. Um, it's a lie that serves me well in a business context, uh, in an organizational context, um, and something that I've had to realize that I think a lot of these things, we all have coping mechanisms that we kind of tend to fall into. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad or harmful, um, but when they control us, then they are because they prevent us from having authentic relationships with other people. And so one of the ways that I've tried to work through this in myself is to realize that I am never and, and should never just have vulnerability on display for all. That's never going to work for me. But if I have a select circle of people who I trust, who we can really go there and go deep and work through that vulnerability, um, then I can have a healthy, happy, joyful existence that doesn't revolve around me being the strongest person in the room. And I think it's interesting to note um, there's something specific about being a woman eight um, culturally. Uh, a lot of times people are sort of surprised to hear this about me and then they hear a little more and they think it makes sense. But I think most of the time, um, and maybe this is more on the unhealthy end of the spectrum, but male eights are often the biggest presence in every room they walk into and they're loud and they're constantly in charge and that is true I think for some women eights um, but I've had to find coping mechanisms in my life to tone down those traits about myself um, to the extent of having a different voice in professional scenarios because the the men and women sometimes who I'm dealing with may find that intimidating mm -hmm. um, or I have to kind of constantly tone that back. And it's been something that I've been told to tone back my whole life, um, both implicitly and explicitly. And, and may I ask you by whom? Uh, sure. Uh, everyone. <laughs> I think culturally uh, from my family of origin uh, and more specifically, I think the church culture. I think church um, in general, evangelical church in the United States does not know what to do with women AIDS. Mm -hmm. um, and I have found that place a lot of times in my life. Um, something that I've kind of described as a pain point before is that I feel like a lot of times in my unhealthier relationships, people have chosen to use me like a bulldog, that I can be really helpful to them when they need someone who's going to address conflict and get in there and rough things up and not be afraid. Uh, but then they don't know what to do with me when it's not wartime and they have no place for that kind of person. They say that the most difficult place on the Enneagram for a woman is the eight personality in the same way that the most difficult, most challenging place for a man to be on the Enneagram is a two because our culture does just doesn't accept as readily the strong, bold, bodacious eight woman and doesn't really accept the gentle, giving, generous, helping, supportive role in a man, in a two. But the interesting thing about that is in health, the growth pattern for the eight is going to two. And even though you didn't say that out loud, I heard you saying that as you described your, your personality and those trigger points. Because when you have that small group that you trust where you are vulnerable that true essence, that deepest place of softness and love and vulnerability comes out. And as they say for the eights who, are, who go to two, to go to their, uh, their, their growth point, that they are like teddy bears. They just have so much affection and can give and help and support the way a, a, help, uh, the way a two does, but from a place of health and strength. And I think I've really had to unpack that integration of how much am I integrating towards two because that's 
healthful and genuine and saturated coming out of a heart that is moving toward a place of genuinely caring deeply about people and being willing to show that vulnerability myself versus how much is kind of a show of I'm just trying to placate myself a little bit in order to be able to participate in the situations I need to participate in because that's not genuine integration. Um, And so I think the eight to two arrow is really complicated for me uh, to unpack and and try to understand. And it's it's interesting because in some ways, I disagree with you and Stephanie with this idea of how much can women be f- feeling empowered as eights? Because I see your generation, specifically now Gen Z generation and millennials, as embracing this idea that a woman can be an eight and can be healthy, right? The, the, the best way I can illustrate that is the song by Rachel Platten, right? She has this song called The Fight Song, and, and lyrics, they go like this, right? This is my fight song. Take back my life song, prove I'm all right song, my power's turned on, which mm-hmm. totally mm-hmm. describes you mm-hmm. in a positive way. And I'm wondering if if those attitudes, Stephanie, are changing so much so that that is why among your core group, and Ken, you, you could also speak to this, it's okay. It's okay that she is the boss. Yeah, just to add on to that a little, I... I love being an eight. Uh, I immediately ranked all the types when I discovered the Enneagram, which I know is a very unhealthy thing to do. But I'm like, yeah, why would anyone not want to be an eight? Eight's obviously the best type that you could possibly be. Um, (laughs) Everything else is a not close second. Um, But I so I do see the very empowering role uh, that an eight can have. Large and in charge. Right. (laughs) I think what I mean is that so I'm not necessarily saying that we shouldn't punish women for that socially. Maybe we should also punish men for that socially and hold everyone to a higher standard. Exactly. But that there is a much more narrow, acceptable way that I can display that Mm -hmm. empowering Mm -hmm. behavior. And I think that there has been massive positive movement in the right direction. Yes. Um, That for my parents' generation, certainly, or even older, that I could not have the the expression of my true self that I am able to have now. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely like this, this, you know, massive positive response is, is really a response to, to previous generations for that and now it's it's more now we're, we're seeing like how how this group of people have been have been um held back mm-hmm. by their voice and and how they are and now it's like oh this is good like this yeah. is a good thing that we yeah. need to yeah. make sure that they know is good yeah and so we we need to push this and and let it be known and i think when you're growing up especially as the number you are and there's there's this cultural norm set up about how these things you feel like oh the world is against me in in that way so i I understand that like i understand that it must be really difficult being a woman eight and growing up and there was no place for you that wasn't negative well to your point israel i i agree i agree with you kent as well and both of you but um as much as things are changing, things are still the same. With the brouhaha from Beth Moore last year and all that went down in 2019, uh, publicly, powerful, powerful men just 
kind of booting her out of their presence or of her reputation, just go home. Um, that those of you who know those names, you, you know what we're talking about. This happens all the time, and it happens in different ways throughout the land. But you know what? Before before we go on, I want to make sure we give Kent a chance to talk about what integration looks like for him, because a one in health, the growth point is seven. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, the the inner critic is is really fascinating because growing up, I didn't know this inner critic was a, a sort of an entity of mine. It was just sort of like one and the same. That's me. Mm-hmm. Um, the inner critic is me, and that's who I'm working with right now. And when I read this and I, I, I learned about the inner critic, it was like, oh, this is like a part of me that isn't 100% me, but is influencing the way I think about things and how I decide about things. <laughs> Sorry, and I had to I had to check this with Megan. So, a, a situation will happen in our lives, and I will I, I and I, do, I was just like I just don't believe Megan that you don't think the same way as I do about this situation, <laughs> and so instead of not saying anything, I will go the opposite direction, and I will I will just open up my thoughts, and I will just say every s- single thing that I was thinking about, and I'll try matching it up with what Megan thinks about the situation. And it never matched up. Like, I would be asking all these questions, my thoughts, like, my concerns, my anxieties about things. And she'll be like, I've never thought about any of those things one time. And I was like, wow, this this inner critic guy is real. Like, he's yeah. real. It is really a one thing. There's probably inner critics for, for everyone, but for, for my inner critic, he, he shaped so much mm. of that. And so... Um, now as I could, could separate the two, I could separate myself and the inner critic and, and see him, him participating in, in my life. I could now see how my integration towards seven, um, h- how he was in the way of a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that goes back to me being really goal oriented, me being, uh, really see, seeing like different levels that I, I have to be at. And my inner critic is like my coach being like, all right, this is how you're going to do it. Right. You're going to do it this way. This is, and he's just like coaching, coaching, coaching. Um, and I've had to work a lot with my therapist through this where I'm just like, hey, like I am stressed about birthdays because I hate becoming 27 and not being valuable, like not being useful by that time. Like, what do I have to do to get that? And I, I struggle with it. And he'll be like working me through this. And he's like, where, where did this come from? Like, where did the, the, the goal orientation come from and, and I'll have to work through that. Um, and some tools he's given me um, is to really move away from, from this goal oriented approach and, and look at values integrated with goals. Um, what are my values? And, you know, when he asked me that, I was like, I don't have any, like, I can't tell you, like I, I all the positive values, I like them. And he's like, well, you don't have any values, and if all of them are good, you don't have any. Mm. Um, I could only tell him goals. I was just like, I would want to do this. I want to do this by before the time I'm thirty, before the t- before I'm thirty five, before I'm forty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just like thinking, like decades, five years, one year, six months, um, which is really unhealthy for for me. Um, I'll be obsessed. I'll be fixed on just like how can I turn my energies into making sure I'm doing these things. And it actually gets in the way of productivity. Sure. Like it, it paralyzes me. I actually don't end up doing better because I'm focused on the, on the goals. Um, and so he's, he's really pushed me through this, this ideas of, of 
what are your values and are you moving towards your values incrementally? Um, and are you, are you okay with that? Yeah. Um, and if you're not okay with that, then you have to review your, your soul and, and your inner critic, like how much of your inner critic is getting involved with, with this. Um, and so it's, it's, it's tough. The inner critic is still there. He, he is still a very powerful voice. Um, but it's, it's something I have to become more self-aware. make a choice to go to seven since you know that about yourself do you ever make a choice and say self you're going to break out of this goal to, for today and just throw caution to the wind and uh, do whatever take Megan and just go on a picnic or do something very seven-ish just like let's go on an adventure I mean obviously the New Zealand <laughs> goal but do you ever find yourself having to, um allowing yourself to make a choice to, to go to that growth point of seven? I, I think when we, we did that sort of world trip, that was a big motivation for me, was to be like, I want to be pushed outside of my comfort zone, and I want to be a, a, a seven in this way. We didn't have the language for that, though, in terms of being a seven or a one. I was just like, I want to I want to be pushed outside of my comfort zone. I want to, I want to be in the ocean just like... Mm-hmm like swimming by myself. I don't want to feel that. And going through that process, I realize it doesn't work that way. Like I can't force myself to be a seven because in that time I won't be thankful for that space. I won't be thankful for being there. I won't be think I'll be stressed. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, we've tried, I've tried forcing it before. I'm like, I'm going to be a seven now and I don't enjoy any bit of it. It it actually reinforces me being a one. It's like, Oh, I know this is wrong. I gotta, I gotta be going back to this. Yeah, it's really had something. No, well, I was just going to say, I've, I've seen you both uh, extremely, so use your strength, Megan, and use your strength, Ken, uh, because here in South Florida, we had a hurricane in the fall, and it devastated the Bahamas, and I think it went through the Bahamas like on a Thursday and Friday. And by the weekend, Megan had organized... The entire area in Palm Beach County, anybody who cared about wanting to do something to help the good folks in the Bahamas, you had organized, sent out emails, already moved the movers and shakers of this area to say, yes, you rallied people. And then we all met on a Sunday at an office and you were leading that. You were there. And what I could see was you were being so supportive of her passion, her justice, and yet you were nodding your head when people were asked or were raising questions about how we covered this, how we covered that. And so the perfectionist in you was assuring her, yeah, you're right. We need to make sure that we cover this. And so you responded back. And I thought, wow, what an amazing power couple mm-hmm. that here you are about to go help some devastated folks in the Bahamas because you are completely innate and because you are completely a one. And that's when I really saw mm-hmm. you two as – these are people who are going to change the world. Mm. Mm. This mm. is kind of a fun story. So that Thursday, I was out on a walk, and I was scrolling through Facebook on my walk, 
and I saw that this ship was departing, and it was going to be the first aid to r- arrive in Freeport. And so I called, made a couple calls. I got myself on the on the manifest to get on the ship, and then I called Kent, and I said, hey, I'm going to stop at Publix on the way back from my walk to get bug spray and sunscreen. I'm leaving for the Bahamas in an hour, and can you cover my workload tomorrow? And I have a bit of a hard time giving up control, <laughs> shocker. So to have someone by my side, partner in business, who I could 100% trust to not let anything fall through the cracks gives me the permission and freedom to take these big leaps. There's probably nothing that Kent would prefer to do less than hop on a ship with an hour's notice into a disaster zone. Um, but I would not have been able to do that without his being able to handle everything on the home front with perfection to a greater degree than I would even be able to perform that. I'm sure that my clients at work got better service that day than they generally get with me on on another day because Kent is so willing and capable of providing that level of excellence. And so I think that's the dynamic that we have a lot of times is um, I'm often looking for a fight, looking for something to just get in and get my hands dirty and jump in there. And Kent is so brilliant at managing his life and my life and our work that it provides the space to be able to do that. Mm. And, and that call does does not surprise me. Like <laughs> receiving a call like that being like, I'm going to be gone for the next couple of days in within an hour does not surprise me. I'm, I'm very ready for any of those calls. Or she's yeah. like, I got to go to, to India right now for this specific yeah. thing. And it's like, yeah, let's yeah. figure out how to do it. Like, yeah. let's like, I just feel like we are young we can do it we are privileged in that sense where we have time it's like we if you if we're gonna if we're gonna make those big jumps and make those big leaps and experience big life it's it's right now like it has to happen right now because once we have kids or if yeah you know we get older we have a house we have a mortgage like all these things that can really tie us down and like if there's an opportunity we just go jump and do mm. it and figure it out um which is you know it, it pulls on my on my one you know inner critic thought process of making sure everything's everything is right but it's something I really believe in also as a one it's like this is this is something that we got to do yeah that's great Kent that is so good two points about that that I want to bring out one is to what you said before about having a hard time becoming a seven when you're a one We've got to make it very clear that that one that you are is who you are, and you don't ever have to become a seven. Well, you can't. As you said, it's forced. It doesn't work. We are not our number, but that, 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 um, that type, that personality type that emerges as a child and a, as, a, as a youngster, that is, once you know that, that's always going to be it. But to go to seven is basically drawing from some of the energy of the seven, and giving yourself that kind of permission, giving yourself permission and freedom to do that. The second thing I wanted to say was when I heard you two talking about this, I just felt so good about the health of your relationship because, and that to your point, uh, Israel, as well about millennials, um, the, the thing that makes a relationship work the most in this country Uh, today, uh, no matter the number, is when both parties deeply respect one another. Respect is the foundation of love. We can talk about love all we want, but without respect, mutual respect, 
the love does not flourish. And one, one of the best things a person can give an eight or any woman in any relationship in a marriage is that kind of trust and freedom to say, hey, I want you to fly. I want you to be who you really are. I don't want, you're not my trophy that I'm going to carry around and say, look at my wife. Look what she does or, or control or possess. You're not someone I own. You're a precious child of God, a person in your own right. And what is that you wanted to do? Okay, let's talk about it. And giving that kind of freedom. Vice versa with the woman, with the man and honoring and understanding in respect that they have a different way of thinking that we do, that, that one number thinks to the other, the other, you know, one person to another, and being able to really, really let that person know he or she is truly respected. Helen Palmer, in this great book that she wrote about the Enneagram at Love, um, in Love and Work, um, writes something about the eight and one that I think speaks to this lovely couple uh, that we're talking to today. She says, in in light of the one with the eight, the eight with the one, she says, um, well, first of all, she says, if there's such a thing as Enneagram opposites, this is it. As I think we <laughs> talked about before, the relationship is going to produce fireworks. Both are anger types prone to black or white thinking and convinced they're right. Initially, Ones are mesmerized by the force and sexuality of the eight persona. It looks so wonderful to be free. Eights are often attracted to the discipline and good intentions of ones. Their moral stance looks truthful to the somewhat lawless boss. And I think that that's, that's some of the things that we've heard today about um, this eight and this one, this Megan and this Kent. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you were saying that it didn't surprise you to get a phone call from Megan and that she was going to do something like this, here are the thoughts that were going through my head, right? It sounds to me that you are deeply grateful and appreciative for what you've got, right? And you are awed just by the simple wonders of her adventures, right? You're so joyful and ecstatic that she's doing what she's doing. I just read to you the level one of a seven. That's what I heard. And you can find that at the Enneagram Institute. Mm. Mm. But everything I just described is the healthy seven, mm. which I don't know if you realize, but when you talk about her, you are a healthy seven. Mm. You go to seven. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's great. Any that's thoughts? Great. Any mm. last thoughts, Megan? No, I just want to talk uh, briefly, I think, about, I think that ones get this rap sometimes that they are so negative and hard on themselves and critical of the world. Um, but I think that the really bright side about ones, the thing that attracted me to Kent in the first place, is how deeply he believes in goodness. And that as an eight, I see the world as a very broken, dangerous sort of place. And my response to that is, well, I'm just going to be stronger. Um, but Kent's response, I think, is actually far more courageous. And his is to say that I'm going to be good and I'm going to find good around me and I'm going to seek out a life of good. And, um, of course, that can be taken to unhealthy places. But I don't think that there's anything more joyful or hopeful than spending life with someone who chooses to see the world like that. Um, and believes that to the core of his being. And, you know, my melancholy self usually says the world is a messed up place. But then I hear these two talk. 
And I'm like, no, you know what? Actually, the world is in pretty good hands right now. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel good about these millennials. I, I was just going to say, Israel, uh, we've had such an interesting time with these two articulate, beautiful people that we haven't even talked about fours. The two of us, no self-absorption there. How do you like that? None. I mean, an hour went just like that, <laughs> and we never got into the most important topic of all, when are you going to have children? Oh, that's bad. <laughs> I know. All right. Oh, Everybody, looks like we're out of time. We are. Oh, man. Aren't you lucky? Oh, man. Yeah. I got your back. I got your back. Megan, Ken, it was so great to have you right here at the Ennio Buzz. Thank you so much for being vulnerable, for being honest and truthful. And we just, we, we love you both. Yes. Uh, you weren't my students, but some of your best friends were some of my students. So I know a little bit about you from that perspective. And Dr. Stephanie Bennett, what a wonderful professor you are to have these two as former students. Oh, man. I just love them. And thank you for coming. Thank you both again for coming. We'll probably have you back. Maybe we'll have you back individually too. Um, Next week. Next next pod not next podcast episode we got a big guest. We've got a six coming. We're going to discuss the six. We're going to have fun with the six and we're going to talk about risk. No risk with the six. All right. By the way, you can catch us on uh, iTunes, on Podbeam and soon enough we're going to be on Spotify. So thank you so much for listening. Leave us a comment. Download this show. If you like it, share it on Facebook, yeah. on on social media. And we are so grateful and thankful that you guys are listening to the Innibuzz. We see you, or we'll hear you next time. (laughs)